Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This chapter contains the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first 17 verses of the chapter. So follow along as I read from 2 Samuel 7 beginning with verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So two weeks ago, we worked through this covenant in verses 8 through 16 in detail. Or at least in as much detail as you can get in 40 minutes. And we saw that it includes these elements. First, God promised David that God would make David's name great. Second, he promised David that the people would have a place. And tied to that was security from their enemies. Now, some see the promise of a place as an affirmation of the land promise that God made to Abraham. And it may be, but it doesn't have the detail and it doesn't define what land like the Abrahamic covenant does. Here, it's a place. But either way, the Abrahamic covenant is still in place. Then the third promise is the, coven- is the promise of rest. Now, some see these first three promises as having been realized during David's lifetime. But really, whether or not they were realized in some way at that time, there is still an ongoing commitment on God's part to these things. Then fourth, there is a commitment to David's house, which in this sense means David's lineage, his royal descendants. Fifth, God promises that he will raise up David's offspring. And sixth, he promises that he will establish David's throne forever. The latter three promises have their fulfillment after David's death. At least that's the way that some have divided up these promises. Those realized during David's lifetime and those fulfilled after David's lifetime. And I presented it this way two weeks ago. As I've reflected on it, I still see the distinction, but I'm not sure how important that distinction is. Because all six promises continue to have relevance. They are all part of the covenant that God made with David, and it is an eternal covenant. None of it goes away if it reaches some measure of fulfillment at a particular time. The question that I want to take up now is, where does this covenant find its ultimate fulfillment? And really, I want to focus on the house, the offspring, and the kingdom. We don't need to ignore the name or the place or the rest, but the house, the offspring, and the kingdom taken together is really what sets the Davidic covenant apart. And this is usually what we have in mind when we focus on its fulfillment. A lot of Bible writers have a lot to say about the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89 is all about this covenant. And it looks forward to a time when it will be fully realized. The prophets, too, talk about its provisions. 
Isaiah and Jeremiah especially, but also Ezekiel and Zechariah and others too. But what I want to do is take you to the New Testament to begin our discussion of the fulfillment. To Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Because here we have something of a waypoint where everyone is going to agree on at least one point. Here, the uh, angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary to announce that she will give birth. And this is the message that Gabriel relayed to Mary from God. He said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So just in this one phrase, the throne of his father David, you have all three of the elements of the covenant that we're looking for. There's the house of David, that is the lineage or the family of David. Jesus is of David's house, and he is the rightful heir to the throne. Now, if you follow the genealogy that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 1, it traces David's line through Solomon and all the way down to a man named Mathan. He was the father of Joseph. And although Jesus was not Joseph's biological son, Jesus was Joseph's legal son. So Jesus would have inherited Joseph's right to the throne. So Jesus was of the house of David and of the house of Solomon. We also see that Jesus is David's offspring. Jesus is the offspring of David. If you look at Luke's genealogy, it's at the end of Luke chapter 3. It's different from Matthew's genealogy. It goes through one of David's other sons, a man named Nathan. Nathan was Solomon's little brother, another son of David and Bathsheba. And you can follow this line to a man named Heli. And if you, or Heli was actually Mary's father. We would say that he was Joseph's father-in-law. But they didn't have that convention. So Luke just writes that he's Joseph's father. The point is that Heli is Jesus' biological grandfather through Mary, Jesus' mother. So Jesus is both the continuation of David's house and he's David's biological offspring. One through Joseph and one through Mary. And then, of course, we have the kingdom. The Lord God will give the throne of his father David to him. The throne of David is the kingdom 
or at least it represents the kingdom. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this is definitive. There is no debate, at least among conservative scholars, that Jesus fulfills these elements of the Davidic kingdom. At this point, we're all on the same page, covenantal, dispensational, that the house of David, the offspring of David, and the kingdom of David all have their ultimate and eternal fulfillment in Jesus. It says so right here. The question isn't who. The question is how. How does David fulfill the David, or how does Jesus fulfill the Davidic covenant? And this is where things get a little dicey. Because there are so many different directions that you can go here. There are at least five different distinct understandings of when and where and with whom Christ will reign in his kingdom. There are two premillennial views. Premillennial because in this view, Jesus returns before the millennium. One of these premillennial views is called the classic or historical premillennial view. This teaches that Christ will return, that is, his second coming, and then he will set up his earthly kingdom, a visible reign, and there he will sit on his throne, reigning with his saints. Albert Moeller, who holds this position, says, it is a period of time in which the rightness of his reign exists as judgment upon the wrongness of human rule and misrule. The second premillennial view is much like the first one in terms of the timing and and of it being a visible reign. The difference is that its purpose is to fulfill God's promises to Israel. And not just the promises made in the Davidic covenant, but the great nation promise, the specific land promises that were made to Abraham. So dispensational premillennialists see Jesus reigning on the throne of David as the national king of Israel. Although as the king of Israel, he will reign over the entire world. Now, both of these views place Jesus' kingdom where they do based on passages like Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, that hasn't happened yet. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, has not yet come in his glory and all his angels with him. That's a clear reference to his second coming. And so if the glorious throne is the throne of David, and if this implies the inauguration of that reign, then it must occur after he returns. And this would also seem to reflect the most 
natural reading of Revelation chapter 20. In the first few verses of Revelation 20, John saw the angels coming down from heaven. And it says they bound Satan for a thousand years. And then in verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The dead in Christ will rise at the second coming, or perhaps seven years before the second coming, depending on your view of the rapture, and they will reign with Jesus on earth for a thousand years. Now the primary distinction between these two premillennial views is the relationship between the church and Israel. And we spent a good bit of the sermon last week addressing those different understandings that different believers have regarding that. So I won't retread that ground this morning. But if you'd like more on that, I'll refer you to that sermon. The third view is called post-millennialism. Now, this view believes that the gospel will spread and the church will grow in this present age until we usher in a thousand years of righteousness. And during that thousand years, Christ will reign, not visibly, but from his throne in heaven. When that millennium is over, Christ will return, which is why it's called post-millennialism. And that view may seem odd to us today, implausible. The world certainly doesn't seem to be moving in that direction. But within this view, there's a broad range of understanding regarding what that millennium, those thousand years, will be like. Some see it as a time when sin and rebellion is completely suppressed, when there will be no challenge to Christ's reign. But others see it as an extended revival, a thousand-year revival when the gospel flourishes, but evil is not fully restrained. And they would point to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, that says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Christ's reign does not begin with his enemies under his feet. It ends with that. And then there are two views under the broad heading of amillennialism. Amillennial literally means no millennium. But that's really a misnomer because it understands the millennium to be right now. It would be better called a realized millennium or perhaps an invisible millennium. Now the first amillennial view is that Jesus is right now reigning in heaven. He is sitting on a throne, which advocates would view as the throne of David. And when John the Apostle was caught up into heaven in Revelation, 
he saw Christ seated on a throne. And he saw him seated there before any of the events that lead to his second coming. And one of the elders spoke to John and called Jesus the root of David. Now, this kind of language, this, this title, the root of David. We find it in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah chapter 11. And it's invariably understood to refer to the Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant is being alluded to here. And if you're premillennial, you're going to see this pointing forward. This is the one who will, at the end of the book, return to earth and claim the throne of David and reign a thousand years. But if you hold this amillennial view, then you'll see this as an affirmation that Jesus is, in fact, fulfilling the Davidic covenant as he sits on that throne. But to be clear, this view is not that Jesus is reigning over the church on earth. This view is that Jesus is reigning in heaven. And his kingdom is made up of his redeemed who have died and are now with him in heaven today. Now some might ask, how is that any different from the way that Jesus has reigned for all of eternity? And advocates of this view would answer, he didn't sit on this throne before he ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection. But more importantly, his kingdom in heaven wasn't made up of redeemed men in eternity past. So there are four of the views, all of which are held by godly, Bible-believing Christians. There's one more, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this one and dig more deeply into one particular passage. This view is the other amillennial view, and the passage comes from Acts chapter 15. I find it interesting, and perhaps a bit surprising, what C.I. Schofield, one of the early champions of dispensationalism, had to say about this passage. In his note on this passage, in the Schofield Reference Bible, he wrote, Dispensationally, this is the most important passage in the New Testament. It gives the divine purpose for this age and for the beginning of the next. Now, I'm reluctant to call any passage the most important. But what I think this reveals is that even one who may disagree on the application of this passage recognizes the significance that it has for understanding how the Davidic covenant relates to us today. And this is from his study Bible. So he only had room for a brief note, but he did go on to indicate that this does relate to the Davidic covenant. So join me in Acts chapter 15. And before I read the verses that I want to consider, let me set up for you the situation. Now, this is probably 15 to 20 years after Pentecost. The gospel has been going out into the world, and Gentiles were being saved. 
So this caused a controversy within the church. Some Jewish Christians insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Essentially, they had to convert to Judaism, they said, under the Old Covenant. Others said, absolutely not. Acts 15, verse 2 says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That is, Paul and Barnabas says, no, they do not need to be circumcised. And they wouldn't back down. So the church convened a council to decide, or really to discern, what was right. So there was a lot of debate. And then at one point, Peter spoke. And that's recorded earlier in this chapter. And then Paul and Barnabas spoke. And that brings us to this point. In verse 13 it says, After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so we begin with verse 13. Now by this point in time, James is established as the leader of the church. Early on, it had been Peter. But now James has taken that role. And he clearly has their respect and their confidence. So they look to him to hear what he has to say. And what follows is masterful. Every word is important. James is clearly equipped and led by the Spirit. Simeon, he says in verse 14, referring to Peter, he refers to him by his Hebrew name. It's one of only two times in the book of Acts that he's called Simeon. He doesn't use Simon, the Greek version of his name, or Peter, which is also a Greek name. James knows that it is his Jewish brothers and the most staunchly Jewish among them that he must convince. And then James refers to what Peter shared earlier with the council. He makes no mention of what Paul and Barnabas uh, had to say. It may be that those who needed convincing had had enough of Paul and Barnabas And they're no small dissension by this point. But James reminds them what Peter said. Hebrew Peter. And here is what Peter had said. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter's point here is that God initiated this. 
before they, the, the church, had considered anything. In the early days, God made the choice. So James seizes on this. He says, God first. He affirms what Peter said, but he uses a word, first, protos, that means not just first in time, but having priority. God takes the lead here. That's what James is saying. God has decided. God has acted. The decision is already made by God. We need to fall in line with it. And Peter went on to explain to them about when he had visited Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and Peter had preached the gospel to him and to his household, and they had believed. And when they believed, the Spirit came upon them. And there was a visible manifestation of that, much like there had been with the apostles at Pentecost. Now, that didn't happen very often, not even in the book of Acts, but it happened with these uncircumcised Gentiles. God was clearly authenticating their conversion. That was the purpose of this kind of manifestation of the Spirit, authentication. And God made it clear that they were saved. And they had received his Holy Spirit. That is what Peter relayed. The way that James expresses it here is amazing. The way that he summarizes Peter's account. Although I think we're apt to miss the significance of it when we read it in English. F.F. Bruce points this out. The word for Gentiles here is ethnos. It means nations. It's understood to refer to the Gentiles, the nations who are not Israel. But the word is nations. People is people. And for his name, of course, indicates possession, God's possession. So when a Jew who was steeped in Old Testament scripture, when he heard this, he could not help but recognize the allusion to Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, and to many other Old Testament passages. In Deuteronomy 14, 2, God says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But where it says, out of all the peoples, the word for peoples there is actually nations. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's exactly the same word, ethnos, that James uses here in Acts. And the people that are chosen in Deuteronomy, that's the same word that James uses for the people taken from the Gentiles. And of course, in both cases, they are for God's possession. Even the word that James used for visited has a connotation of choosing. When earlier in in the book of Acts, when the apostles told the people to choose seven men to be deacons, 
This is the word that they use. The word that's translated visited here. So I think the NIV, the the New International Version, gets it right when they translate Acts 15 verse 14 to say that God intervened to choose. When James says God chose from among the nations a people for his possession, his Jewish brothers understood exactly what he was doing. He was equating what God was doing among the Gentiles in Acts with what God had done with Israel early in the New Testament. He says a lot in that one sentence. But he's just getting started. So he continued in verse 15. And he says, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. He's saying, this isn't just based on what we see God doing today. James is also basing this on what God said in Scripture. And so he quoted this passage. It comes primarily from Amos chapter 9. But James also incorporates a couple of phrases that he pulls from Jeremiah and Isaiah. At the beginning of Amos chapter 9, earlier in the chapter than than this piece that, that James quotes, God pronounces judgment on Israel. Because of their disobedience, God will discipline them. And it's exactly what he said that he would do in the Davidic covenant. In the covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, in verse 14, God says, I will be to him like a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Because of Israel's disobedience, they would not experience the blessings of the covenant for a time. But God continued in 2 Samuel and said, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, the discipline will be temporary and the covenant will be fulfilled. That's what we see happening in Amos 9. First, there will be judgment. And then, beginning with this passage that James quotes, there will be restoration. After this, or at this time, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Now, there's a lot of question as to what the tent, or literally the tabernacle, represents. There are at least seven different understandings, and they range from the temple to the city of Jerusalem to the house of David, that is the dynasty of David. But I'm not going to get into any of that. Because everyone agrees that whatever the tent specifically signifies, the greater meaning here is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The restoration of what was set aside 
during judgment. The question is, how is the Davidic covenant restored? And James seems to answer that for us. He applies this, this passage from Amos 9, to what happened when God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. How does God rebuild the tent of David that has fallen? By grafting these Gentiles into the remnant of Israel that God has kept. I think that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 11. God has not rejected Israel. Paul himself is evidence of that, he says. I'm part of Israel, and God has included me in his church. Therefore, God has not rejected Israel. That's Paul's opening argument in Romans 11. And then Paul goes on. He says there are more. A remnant that God has kept, just as he did in Elijah's day. And they are still Israel. And now God has taken this people from the Gentiles and has grafted them in. The remnant of Israel is there. And it always will be there. But it's no longer just the remnant of Israel. God has now added to that remnant the remnant of mankind to seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by his name. And this is how God restores and fulfills the promises made in his covenant to David, at least according to this view. So the fifth view is that the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in the church. That is, in the remnant of Israel, along with those Gentiles that God has chosen to add to them. And this view then understands Christ to be reigning today over his people, although not visibly as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. These are the five views that exist within the church today. Although they can't all be right, none of them is what we should consider aberrant teaching. And we should be able to embrace each other even when we differ on these issues. I appreciate something that Al Mohler said a few years ago. He was responding to a question at a TNA that he was doing. And he addresses dispensationalism specifically. But what he said should apply to any of these views. He said, I am not a dispensationalist. And then he went on to give a few reasons why he wasn't. But then he added, I'm not anti-dispensationalist. I'm able to teach with them, witness with them do missions with them, and hire them. Now, when he says hire them, he's not talking about hiring a plumber. Moeller's the president of a seminary. He hires professors to train pastors who will lead churches. If there's ever a time when the theology of your hire matters, it's here. Yet Moeller is eager to embrace and employ and partner with those who disagree with him on these issues. And so should we. As your pastor, 
I would not be concerned to find out that you hold any of the views that we laid out this morning. You might ask me, which view do you hold? Probably that last one, which is the one that you went into most detail to. And I'm going to step away from my notes just a second and just talk to you. Maybe, maybe I believe that. I'm not 100% sure. And I know the pastor's not supposed to say that. This pastor's supposed to know. But I take some comfort in something that I heard R.C. Sproul say a few years ago. Well, more than a few years ago. He's with the Lord today. But it was an interview, and somebody asked him, what is your eschatology? And he said, I'm not sure. And he identified three different positions, three of the ones that that we talked about this morning. And he says, I think they all make good points. And I'm not 100% sure which is right. And so if R.C. Sproul, who I believe is one of the greatest minds of the last century, Christian minds, isn't sure with all of the scholarship that he has invested in, then maybe it's okay that I'm not sure. I also take some comfort in something that that Al Mohler said in that same uh, question and answer that I I cited earlier. He said, these things, this eschatology, is not necessarily made clear to us. And maybe by design, it's not. He said, it's not unlike God's will for your own life. You may have a, a general idea of where God is leading you and where he's taking you. But he doesn't give you a roadmap. He doesn't give you all those details. Now, when you come to the end, you're going to look back and you're going to see all the pieces fall into place. And it is going to be an absolutely perfect fulfillment of all that he said and all that he did. But that doesn't mean that we see it all right now. He said we should study these things. That's not an excuse to just ignore these issues. We should study them and we should know what God says. And we should look forward to the fulfillment of that. But maybe we're not supposed to know every detail of it. All truth is important. It is always better, more spiritually healthy, more God-honoring, to have rightly understood the Word of God on any point that the Word of God addresses. We all fall short of that. And we should continue to strive for a better understanding on everything that God's Word teaches. But I do not believe that our understanding on this point is anywhere near as important for us to understand as other things. Those things would include the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, how we should continue to apply the gospel in our lives on a daily basis for the sake of his glory. Our spiritual diet, I think, is much like our physical diet. You need a lot of some things and a very little bit of other things. In our spiritual diet, we need a lot of gospel and maybe just a little bit of eschatology. Doesn't mean we should completely ignore eschatology, but we shouldn't make it the main component of our diet. So I look forward, as we move forward, and as the Lord wills, to continuing to explore with you the gospel and how we apply it in our lives. And to that end, I want to remind you Next Lord's Day, 
if he wills, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I haven't decided for sure, but I think I'm going to step away from First Sam- or Second Samuel again for a week. And I'm going to teach specifically on our Lord in his death and to prepare us that morning for what we will remember. And I would encourage you during this week to begin to prepare yourself for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for everything you reveal in your word, even the things that we don't understand. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us discernment, to understand them, wisdom, to know what to pursue. And Father, above all, love and unity for each other. Father, thank you for this body that you've brought together. Thank you for the love that's displayed for you, for the love of Christ that's displayed for each other, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.